Our scripture text this morning is Job chapter 11. So we've considered the speech of Job's friend Eliphaz. We've considered the speech of Job's friend. I say friend. Um, They haven't been acting as the best friends, but nevertheless, they are men that uh, Job knows and who are coming to him out of care for him, even though it's misdirected in many ways. Um, Zophar is the third of these friends. He's the one who is speaking here in chapter 11 uh, to Job. Hear God's word as it's recorded here in chapter 11 in the form of Zophar the Namathite's speech. Then, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. A way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Imagine the scenario where Children are told by their parents to not play baseball near the house because we don't want to find any broken windows or damaged siding. And one day dad comes home from work and finds a broken window with this very discernible circle-shaped hole punched through the glass, and he asks his children about the broken window. And each one in his own way says, well, I didn't do it. And uh, one of the children says, to quote him exactly, I'm innocent. Think of those words, I'm innocent. What should be the response to such a claim? Is it time for a theological lesson on how no one is innocent, at least in this life? That even though we are declared innocent in God's sight, justified by faith in Jesus, we still sin, we we still need our hearts to be purified? Does this response, I'm innocent, necessitate a rebuke for pride and for lying? since technically and ultimately no one is innocent. I would hope we would agree that the child in this case doesn't need a theological lesson, doesn't need to be rebuked for his choice of words. 
Assuming he didn't break the window and is telling the truth, he's trying to say, if we will but listen and truly understand, he's saying, I'm innocent of breaking the window. He isn't claiming moral perfection in all areas of his life. And yet there are those who do claim to be sinless. In this life, they claim they have reached a state of perfection. And when they say, I am innocent, they mean it with all of the moral pride that can be involved. And that kind of claim of innocence does deserve rebuke. In our text this morning, Job is is being rebuked by Zophar for exactly this sort of claim. In verse 4, he quotes Job as saying, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. That word doctrine, as we find it in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, refers to the instruction, the, the teaching that is found in the wisdom literature. That Job's instruction or his teaching is pure means that there is not a mixture of truth and falsehood, but it, this, his teaching is pure truth, full of wisdom. This is a claim that his teaching is flawless. And as for him being clean in God's eyes, this word clean suggests moral purity to the level of sinless perfection. So Zophar is accusing Job of claiming to have perfect understanding, perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge, so as to be infallibly able to teach others. And he's claiming that Job is is claiming to be free of sin. I've only talked to one person in my life who claimed to no longer sin. She admitted that she used to sin, but she claimed that, as at the, that at the time I talked to her that she no longer sinned. And I've heard of others making that same claim. Well, 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10 is the answer from Scripture to anybody who would make such a claim. It says there, if we say we have no sin, that is, if, if we say we have no sin affecting our lives, there's no sin nature, there's, there's no current sin going on in our lives in the, present, in the present tense, we deceive ourselves, John says, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He goes on to say, if we say we have not sinned, have not, that is, not committed any sin in the past, Or perhaps he's saying, um, if we say we've not sinned since conversion, but at some point in the past, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So anyone who would claim in this life to be perfect, who would claim to be sinless, needs to repent of the very sin of making such a claim. Well, Zophar is calling Job to repent of making such a boast of perfection. And uh, Zophar begins by putting Job in his place with respect to his claim that his doctrine is pure. Zophar suggests that if God would speak, he would tell Job the secrets of wisdom, which is his way of saying that, uh, telling Job, uh, Job, God will set you straight if uh, he were to speak. Zophar explains God is manifold in understanding, verse 6. This is an attempt at translating the Hebrew which literally says God is twofold in his understanding. Uh, the New American Standard Version translates it then pretty literally when it says sound wisdom 
has two sides, and I'm not sure what that means, and I don't know of anybody that does. What, is it, what would it mean to say sound wisdom has two sides? Well, the best explanation of this twofold understanding, as I have heard it, is that God's understanding uh, concerns both the things of this world that he has revealed to us, uh, the things that he's revealed to us, and then, as well, the things that are hidden from us. Um, God has knowledge of, of many things hidden from us, whether in his decree or in the spiritual realm. So I'm thinking that that's probably, that's what most commentators would point to, this, that is meant by this twofold knowledge of God. And even though there's some doubt about the exact meaning, I think that the main point is clear enough. The idea must be that God has a full grasp of reality, a full knowledge of the world versus Job's partial grasp. And confirmation of this perspective is found in verses 7 through 9, where by means of rhetorical questions, Job is being told he doesn't know the deep things of God and that he can't even come close to knowing the limits of God's knowledge. Whether you search heaven, Sheol, land or sea, God's knowledge is higher, deeper, longer, and broader. It's interesting to note how Zophar's words parallel those of the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, verses 33 and following, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so a closer look then at Zophar's wording indicates that he's highlighting various aspects of God's wisdom. We, I think, need to picture this, what he's doing here, like we're, like we're looking at a diamond from all different angles it's the same, same diamond, but it's being viewed from different angles. And so God's wisdom is knowledge. It's higher than heaven. It's deeper than Sheol. It's longer than the earth. It's broader than the sea. And let's take a moment to consider those expressions and what's being said, what's, what's meant. Well, in being higher than heaven, God's wisdom extends over every part of his vast creation. And so far, must be thinking of God's wisdom and how God rules wisely over all things. For he says, it is higher than heaven. What can you do? Job is being addressed. God's wisdom is higher than heaven. So what can you do, Job? In other words, Job, what can you do to challenge God as he wisely rules over his world? God's knowledge extends to all of God's creation as he guides everything to the purpose that he has for it. And then in being deeper than Sheol, the idea is that God's knowledge is mysterious. We cannot plumb its depths. We can only begin to barely understand the things, uh, to understand things as God knows them. And then in being longer than the earth, the word longer refers to time, really not distance. I looked it up in the Hebrew. The word there refers to length of time not distance. So God's knowledge is older than the earth. God existed before the earth. As creator, God has always known all of the intricacies of his creation. He's not like scientists here on earth where we have to study the earth and the seas and the universe and 
we come to understand some aspects of them over time. That's how we learn things. But God has always had a perfect knowledge of the world that he has created. And furthermore, God's knowledge is broader than the sea. Broader means measureless. And when we think of the sea, we think of the the oceans of of this earth, we think of the, the distances involved, the amount of water, the variety of wildlife that our oceans contain, we realize how little we know. And God not only has a complete grasp of all aspects of the sea, his knowledge extends beyond the sea to everything else in his world. The amount of content involved in God's knowledge as he knows all aspects of his creation, it's beyond measure. And what Zophar is, is doing is giving Job, he's giving us an overview, a description of the, the various ways that God's knowledge and wisdom dwarf anything that we know. And of course, Zophar is specifically attacking Job's supposed claim to have perfect knowledge. And while none of our knowledge can match up to God's, Zophar is not interested really in discrediting Job's knowledge in general. Zophar is attacking Job's supposed knowledge of himself as being sinless. That's the unique focus. We see what Zophar is thinking about in verse 6 where he challenges Job's thinking that God is exacting of him more than he deserves. Zophar says to Job, you need to know that what is happening to you is less than your guilt deserves. And then Zophar goes into extolling the attributes of God's knowledge. It's not just to give a theology lesson. It's not just to elicit praise to God for his astounding knowledge. But the purpose behind Zophar's extolling of God's knowledge becomes clear in verses 10 through 12 and especially verse 11. For Zophar wants Job to know that God's knowledge of his sinfulness is what accounts for why Job is suffering. As far as Zophar is concerned, God knows what evil Job has done, even though Job will not admit it. Zophar points out the obvious truth that when God decides to take someone into custody in order to take him to court, there is no one who is going to stop him. And why is this? Because his knowledge extends to what men are like, extends to what they have done. It's an infallible knowledge without error. Verse 11, God knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. And in that last sentence, Zophar is speaking of two impossible things by way of comparison. Just as impossible as it is for a wild donkey to have a man as its colt, it's impossible likewise for a man who is stupid to get understanding. And let's flesh out what this stupid man is like. The stupid man in the Hebrew, is a hollow man. He is a bored-through man. I'm thinking back to my mother-in-law's wooden deck that I helped replace recently, and some of the boards were obviously bad, and I figured I was at least going to have to replace, you know, a few, uh, probably half-dozen boards or so. Um, Most of them looked good, and... uh, but with a little exploration, a little taking apart of some of the boards, you soon realize they looked good on the surface, but were actually bad upon further inspection. A good number of boards had been eaten away by termites, and what you were walking on in places were boards only like a quarter of an inch thick. It looked perfectly fine on the surface, but underneath they were gone. 
and uh, we would say that decking had been hollowed out by termites. And that deck is an illustration of hypocrisy, where something looks one way on the outside, but on the inside, it's totally different. And so it is that men can be hollow. A hollow person, this stupid person that Zophar is referring to is one who is spiritually and morally empty. This is a way of describing a sinner who is insincere, someone who is hypocritical because he's empty of true spiritual understanding. And he either foolishly thinks that he can get away with just appearances of righteousness, or he has no true knowledge of his own heart and actually thinks he's righteous when he's not. This stupid man, and of course Job is supposed to understand that he's this stupid man, is a man who needs understanding, really a new heart. The word for understanding has the word heart at its root. So a stupid man has a heart incapable of knowledge. The problem with Job, as Zophar sees it, is that Job has alleged to have perfect knowledge that tells him that he's morally perfect in the sight of God, when in fact, Job is a terrible sinner. The problem is not just what Job has supposedly said about himself, but also the attitude behind it. And we see here in these verses, Job being confronted as a stubborn and arrogant man. So far, speech starts out with him accusing Job of being a windbag who mocks those around him. So far, describes Job's speeches as being a multitude of words, a bunch of words that don't have much substance. He is a man full of talk, a man who has plenty to say, and the implication is a man who likes to hear himself talk. And he thinks that what he is saying is so worthwhile that it needs to be expressed for all to hear, but in reality, it's just babble. This is what Zophar is saying about Job's speeches so far. And babble is just a bunch of meaningless, empty chatter. And then Zophar takes the insults to a whole new level by saying that Job's words amount to mockery, verse 3. Well, in the Bible, you find mocking God being contrasted with praising God. There's also the mocking of God's people. You either receive words of wisdom as they come from God's wise people, or you mock those words, and you mock the people delivering them by rejecting them. And so mocking is a more rebellious stance toward the truth than a, than a person just rejecting the truth and walking away. Mocking is when you, in your mind or in your words, ridicule the truth of God's word. Mocking is when you, you reject it with an attitude of, that's ridiculous, and I know better than to believe something like that. And so the picture that Zophar is painting of Job is a man who is full of himself, who likes to talk, and, and he thinks he knows the truth, when in reality he is a stupid man, he is an empty fool, he is a mocker of God's truth. And some, Zophar, is accusing Job of being a proud know-it-all, a man who thinks he knows better than God himself what is happening in his life. And Zophar seems to be allowing for two possible scenarios for Job. First, that Job thinks he can hide his sin from God and then accuse God of injustice. It would indeed be the height of pride for a man to think that he can challenge God's justice and get God to admit he's wrong and back down. So that's the first possibility for Job, according to Zophar, or second, Job doesn't know the sin he has committed. 
but this is because he's too proud to humbly examine his heart and life. There must be, you see, some sin that would account for the hardships that Job is facing, but Job thinks he knows better than God does. And uh, the bottom line is that Zophar is accusing Job of pride. And uh, the wisdom lesson, and there's truth here to this, is that as long as a person takes a prideful stance toward God, he's not going to understand himself properly in relation to God. Pride is a roadblock to true knowledge. And that's the problem for Job as Zophar sees it. Which brings us then to the main exhortation that Zophar has for Job. Zophar's solution for Job's pride and what's going to be uh, able to turn things around for Job is stated there in verse 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. And so this call for Job to prepare his heart, it's really a call for Job to turn his heart toward God. The Hebrew word for prepare basically means to direct or to order something aright. And here in this context, it means to direct one's heart in the right direction toward God. The very same word is used in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, where Samuel tells the people of Israel that if they are returning to the Lord with all their heart, and that's the key word there, returning, if they are returning then they are to put away their false gods. And so the Hebrew word translated as returning, there has the idea of repenting from idol worship, and they need to be turning back to God and serving God only. And so Samuel and Zophar both use the word in a way that indicates that this turning to God, it's not a turning toward him in order to confront God, it's not a turning toward him to correct God, but it's a turning toward him marked by the humility of repentance. So far goes on to tell Job that if he prepares his heart, if he turns his heart, what's going to happen next is that he will stretch out his hands toward God. And the stretching out of one's hands, it's a Hebrew expression that refers to humbly praying to God for help. It's the word for supplicating God in prayer. And the picture is of a humble sinner approaching the king of the universe, coming as a needy citizen who extends his hands in order that the king might give him what he needs. The picture is of Job coming as a receiver, not as a giver. And if anything, Zophar believes that Job has iniquity in his hands. He says, if iniquity is in your hand, now notice he says it, if, as though this might not be the case, and that sounds nice. It makes Zophar sound like he's not being judgmental, but he's clearly here calling Job to, to, to repentance. He's calling him to, to pray a prayer of repentance. And Zophar gives his opinion away when without any qualification, he adds to what he says about iniquity, let not injustice dwell in your tents. So Zophar believes that if Job extends his hands toward God, all he will bring is iniquity. And uh, we know that Zophar believes Job is an unrepentant sinner because in verses 15 through 19, Job is told that if he repents, all of the misery that he is experiencing will fade away. And so Job is called to repent, to humbly turn his heart toward God 
supplicating God for, well, we are not told explicitly, but presumably mercy and forgiveness. And along with his prayers to be a turning away from his sin, specifically iniquity and injustice. And by the way, this word injustice is a word that refers to wrongdoing that oppresses the neighbor. And suggests that Job has been oppressing his neighbors and been acquiring his riches by taking sinful advantage of others. Verses 15 through 19 give us this beautiful description of what happens when a sinner becomes right with God in the way of repentance. Everything changes. So far applies this all to Job as, as what will happen if he will repent, where before he was afraid of God's wrath and and, and and lacked any hope of a future life with God. Job, in contrast, will be able to lift up his head in confidence, uh, without blemish, Zophar says, which means either that Job will no longer be disfigured by his disease. Some commentators uh, believe that that's the idea here, that he will be set free from the, these blemishes that are a part of his, this horrible skin disease that he has, or he will be able to stand before God as a justified sinner without blemish, talking about his legal status before God through repentance. Job, he says, you will be secure, you will not fear. And that word secure comes from the Hebrew word for the pouring out of of molten metal as as it's being cast into some kind of a, a figure. The idea is that as that metal cools, it stiffens, it hardens, it becomes immovable. And so Job is to think about how his chaotic life can become stable, firm in the way of repentance. He will be set free from worry and anxiety and from the fear of where he stands with God. And the gospel is that in the way of repentance, you can be set free from that emotional roller coaster of always wondering if you've done enough to merit God's favor. You can have a life where every day you are calm and collected because you know God loves you and that he is working all things together for your good. But Job's current life is not like that, right? It's marked by chaos. It's marked by fear. There's like this darkness that hangs over him. But things can and will change, Zophar says. Repentance will bring a brightness to Job's life greater than the noonday. Even if a bad day comes, it won't be the utter darkness like Job is currently experiencing it will still be like the light of morning. It seems to line up with the teaching of Job's friends that while believers suffer, they do allow for that, yet it will only be temporary. The light of a better day is always just around the corner as long as we are repenting of sin and living godly lives. And so far explains that God in his mercy even enables repenting sinners to forget the misery of the past our past sins, the misery of God's judgments against those sins can be, he says, like waters that have passed away. It sounds very similar, does it not? This Hebrew expression here to an expression that we have where we talk about something that we've put behind us is like water under the bridge. That is what happens to our shameful pasts when God in his grace forgives us. Verse 18, the word secure is the Hebrew word for trust. And could read this way, and you will trust, Job, you will trust because there's hope. Job's relationship with God will be restored to one where Job is trusting God 
Verse, verse 18 says, Job will trust because there is hope. Hope is trusting God to give us great things in the future. And Job will be trusting God because he knows God will always be with him in love, even through death. What Zophar describes next is Job looking around for a place to rest for the night and being able to lay down in security. It's also possible that the Hebrew there might mean ashamed, so that Zophar would be saying, Job, you were ashamed. That's what used to mark your life, but now you will be able to take your rest in security. The idea would be that uh, one of contrast between how Job felt before and after repenting the end of verse 18, Zophar says, Job will take his rest in security. And security has the same Hebrew root as the word secure earlier in the verse, which is the word for trust. And so the idea is that Job will be able to rest with trust in God. That is knowing that God will be with him in love. And so he will be able to, as a result, lay down at night without a care in the world, knowing that God will be watching over him in love. And there's just so much here in Zophar's words. This word lie down is the word typically used of, of, a, of sheep lying down under the care of their shepherd. And we remember how Job back in chapter 10, verse 16, just in the previous chapter, said he felt like God was like a lion hunting him down. And Zophar is likely now saying to Job that in the way of repentance, he will no longer know God to be like a lion, but he will be like a loving, gentle shepherd. And verse 19 summarizes the life of a repentant sinner as a life of tranquility, where Job currently is trying to sleep, and either he can't sleep or his sleep is plagued with nightmares. And Zophar holds out to Job the very desirable carrot of being able to rest in peace. And he throws in at the end the final reward. Many will court your favor. People will look to you, Job, as a source of wisdom. They will even look to you for monetary help, which is based on the assumption that Job is going to have all of his wealth restored, or perhaps people will court his favor, coming to him saying, Job, pray for me, for you're clearly a man who is now under the Lord's favor. The Lord's going to hear your prayers, and so please pray for me. And Zophar ends his speech in verse 20 with a warning of what will happen if Job doesn't repent if he continues to insist he is righteous three horrible things will happen first as a wicked man his eyes will fail a picture of his sorrow just growing even deeper and deeper as death approaches second a way of escape will be lost that is he will have doomed himself to god judging him to a death where he will know nothing of god's love and favor in other words you're not going to be able to escape from going to hell and then third, his hope will be to breathe his last. That is, his life on earth will grow to be so miserable that he won't even care about what happens next. He's just going to long for his latest breath to be his last breath. So what are we to think of so far speech? What are we to think? Well, first, Zophar has made a number of points that are biblical points that are theologically, doctrinally correct. Um, for example, he's right to call out someone who says his teaching is perfect. Uh, he's right to call out someone who says he doesn't sin. We give also a hearty amen to his description and praise of God's knowledge. 
He's correct about the relationship between a person's attitude and his ability to know spiritual truth, namely that if a person is proud, he's not going to be able to understand spiritual things correctly. So far as correct in how he describes the nature and necessity of repentance, if we are to experience a life of blessing and relationship with God, his description of the experience of forgiveness of being right with God in verses 15 through 19 is very powerful. It's vivid. It's a very comforting description of what it's like when God hears our prayers of repentance and forgives us in Christ. What is described by Zophar is the peace that Jesus Christ has earned for us by taking the wrath of God that we deserve as he died on the cross. And there is nothing like the gospel of salvation to put a spring in your step uh, to, to, to put lasting joy into your heart and to give you a perspective on life where everything is bright no matter what your circumstances are. And what an amazing thing when you can face the future without fear and with hope, all because you are right with God. It is Jesus who has accomplished this for us. So far has given us really a description of uh, the blessings of salvation that we know come through the Lord Jesus Christ. So far is also correct in bringing together repentance and faith, showing himself to be a fairly decent theologian in some ways, because repentance and faith are never to be divorced from one another. We go to God in repentance as we, we have faith in the promise of God to forgive us on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, which in the time of Job would be trust in the sacrifice of the Messiah to come, And for us in the New Testament, trust in the sacrifice that Christ has already given for us. We go to God with our sins in a spirit of humble petitioning for forgiveness because we know that he gives humble, repentant sinners hope and safety and never condemnation. So far, knows a lot of things correctly. But that does not mean that we are to think that Zophar's speech is good. Overall, his speech is terrible. And uh, in fact, at the end of the book of Job in chapter 42, it will come out that Zophar has not spoken what is right. And lest we think that his sin is minimal, uh, it required sacrifice to atone for it. It was for such words as Zophar spoke here that Zophar will be commanded by God to offer sacrifice and ask Job to pray for him. In other words, Zophar is the one who needs to repent. Zophar's speech is a clear lesson to us on how it is not enough to have the right doctrine. Zophar is an example of someone who says the right things in a wrong way because he misapplies the truth. He misapplies the truth by judging Job incorrectly. And he misapplies the truth by not applying it to himself. I want to quickly point out these things. So first of all, the argument that Zophar builds against Job ends up being like a skyscraper built upon a sinking swamp. For everything that Zophar says is built on the wrong foundation of false charges and slander. Zophar is absolutely wrong about Job on a number of fronts. He misquotes Job in verse 4 when he has Job saying, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. Job has never said these things. He said things that on the surface might sound like that, 
but this is not a truthful quote of what Job has said. Job has never claimed to have perfect knowledge of God and of what is going on in his life. In fact, he has said just the opposite. In fact, Job's just, he's disturbed by the fact that he doesn't understand what's happening. And as for being clean in God's eyes, he has expressed doubts concerning his being justified. He's never said that he is without sin altogether. What he has said is that he is not guilty of particular sins. That would account for God coming against him in this threefold judgment as he sees it of taking his family, his wealth, and his health. So far, is also dead wrong about Job being a sinner who doesn't repent of his sin and is being judged by God. In chapters 1 and 2, God says that Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. It doesn't mean Job is perfect. We've talked about that. But it does mean he is living a life of repentance. And we are told by God himself in chapters 1 and 2 that Job is not experiencing misery because he needs to repent. And so Zophar is dead wrong about Job on so many fronts. And this is ironic, and it's ultimately very problematic for Zophar's integrity because Zophar has just condemned Job for pridefully thinking he knows everything about what God is doing when in reality, Zophar proudly thinks he knows exactly why Job is experiencing his hardships. Zophar is the one with the pride problem. He is the one who needs to repent of false charges and slander. He is exactly the person who needs to hear the words of Matthew 7 that I read earlier. Judge not that you be not judged. And take care of the log that is in your own eye before you take care of the splinter in your neighbor's eye. And so let us take the example of Zophar to heart. Let us recognize the awful potential there is for us to condemn in others what we have a problem with. You and I can be blind to our own sin. We can be blind to our own lack of knowledge and be pointing the finger at others when we need correction. And let us recognize that it's not enough to know the right things. Properly applying the truth is just as important. Wisdom is all about knowing when and where and how to apply biblical principles. And finally, we are reminded that God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. As much as Zophar is messed up in some ways, he has laid out a lot of truth that we do well even to meditate on. Again, his description of God's knowledge His description of the experience of the forgiveness of sins, these are verses that are worth meditating upon. They're verses that you and I ought to come back to again and again for encouragement. And it's just a reminder that believers, and I believe we have scriptural evidence to support the fact that Zophar, as messed up as he is, is a believer. So think of that, how ungodly he is in some ways and yet godly in other ways. And isn't that not a picture of how reality is for us as believers? Reminder that we're saved by grace, grace alone. Our lives here on earth are filled with a mixture of good and evil. We still have the remnants of our corrupt nature that mess up so much of what we do. And uh, so there's this mixture. We see it in Zophar. 
so messed up in so many of the things that he says and how he's confronting Job, and yet beautiful sections on God's knowledge. Beautiful section on repentance and the experience of it. Of course, there's also an appropriate warning that's appropriate to those who will not repent of their sins, of the destruction, the judgment that's coming. But let us take to heart the lesson that those who wrongly confront us may at the very same time say some things that are worthwhile. Let that soak in as well. Sometimes people come to us and they may be saying a lot of things that are just dead wrong. They may be saying some things as well that are dead right. And we need to sift through all of that in the light of God's word and uh, take what is correct, throw out what is wrong, but have the humility to, to, to hear the truth even from people who have this mixture of truth and untruth going on. We, we have to always interpret, right, what we are told in the light of Scripture. And while it is true, focus here in the very close here of this message, uh, something needs to be said about those, those, those words that end verse 6, where Zophar says, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. While it is true on one level that God has exacted of Job and us less than our guilt deserves, we can't leave Jesus out of the equation. When you trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your guilt is taken by Christ and there is no more wrath, there is no more punishment, there's no more justice that you deserve to suffer. And while we in this life struggle with sin and we may need chastening discipline, we, that may be the case, that we need chastening discipline. Now for Job, that wasn't the case. But even if we were to receive chastening discipline, we're never getting what we deserve. You can rightly say, I'm innocent. Not innocent in yourself, but innocent because Jesus has paid the penalty of your sin. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And Father, may we take the lessons here to heart. Uh, may we ourselves be very careful as we think about the sin of others. As we make judgments, may we be ready to judge ourselves first and to recognize that there is this horrible mixture of sin along with the righteousness that you are working in our lives. Um, Father, we pray that we would never put our hope in our own righteousness, but only in the righteousness of Christ. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we would, uh, as Zophar has, has laid out for us, um, praise you and worship you as a God of amazing knowledge. We'd also praise you and thank you for that forgiveness of sins that you grant and, and what it means for our lives, the joy, the peace that it brings. Father, um, we thank you that you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And Father, we are all crooked in various ways, but Lord, we ask that you would use us and that you would more and more remove from us untruths and, and bad attitudes that we would be, Lord, your sanctified holy people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.